Does anybody else hear Brian tell me to keep my words few? <laughs> He's using a Bible to use it to do that? Man. <clears throat> my name is Dave, and I want you to know that today uh, I welcome you here to Highland Park's 63rd birthday. 63. You all got your cake on the way in, did you not? Oh, oh. 63 years ago, uh, uh, Highland Park's first official Sunday was July 1st. Uh, the first Sunday in July in 1956 was July 1. And so the first Sunday of July, that was when Highland Park got its start. Uh, in uh, 1956, Tulsa was a city of about 200,000. The Hoover Elementary School was a brand new elementary school, and it was the largest school in the state. Uh, and, uh, and we wanted to establish a church way out east in Tulsa. <laughs> Some things have changed in 63 years. <clears throat> Highland Park had 17 people on that very first Sunday. Uh, in 1981, uh, Roseanne and I and our girls moved to Weatherford, Oklahoma, and uh, we started a new church in Weatherford. And our first Sunday, we had 50 people. And the second Sunday, I think it was 17. There seems to be something about that number. We'd had a lot of guests that came and said, okay, you're on your own now. 17 people. Uh, for the first few months, they met down at the uh, uh, com uh, Memorial, Community Memorial Drive Community Center, which is located just a little east of 15th and Memorial. Uh, and then after that, they moved to MacArthur Elementary, which is over by Hale High School. Um, and they did that in September. And by the close of the charter uh, of Highland Park in December of 1956, uh, there were 50 members. And by the time they celebrated their first birthday, there were 100 members. And we are blessed. We still have five people who were in that first 100 who are still active members at Highland Park. And I'm not going to ask you to stand up <clears throat> because you've been here for 63 years and that may be difficult. <laughs> but Don and Susie Bew, would you please raise your hands? They are, they are here. Gene Fine, sitting right there, Gene. David Hinkle in the back. David Hinkle's dad was our founding pastor, uh, Don Hinkle, but everybody knew him as Pappy, and, uh, and his dad was the founding minister here, and Pat Howe, I lost you in the, in the audience, where are you, Pat? Somebody point her out, or did she skip church? She was here earlier. Is she back there? Oh, she's upstairs, thank you, there she is, all right, okay. <clears throat> They didn't have a balcony when they started, and she likes to go up there. No. Uh, Pat was, uh, was, uh, was a young person 63 years ago, and uh, she uh, witnessed, dated a wild child by the name of Leroy Howe, and uh, Pat and Leroy were the first couple married in this worship center. Uh, in, in 19, was that 65, 6, 7? Seven, okay. Pam and Bud Riggs were the next couple. 
uh, from Highland Park that were in this chapel. Uh, this uh, room has gone through several renovations since then, but we've all gone through some renovations since then. <clears throat> but one of the things that, that Pappy Hinkle would tell his wife, would tell everybody, he said, someday there will be a church on this hill that has a steeple and a cross that points people to Jesus. And we're still doing that. Would you pray with me as we celebrate? God, we want to be that place that always points people to your son Jesus. God, we want to be a church that lifts up Christ. We want to be a church that loves people the way Christ loves people. We want to be a church that teaches your word because we know that your word is true. We want to be a church that honors you in everything that is said and done in this place. God, thank you for the blessings we've experienced from you, the good times and the hard times we've gone through, that you have been faithful. And so, Father, may we continue to seek you. May we continue to find your will and your direction for us as a congregation, that we will be faithful to you. And may those who come behind us find us to have been faithful as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, today we are beginning our study in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, so I'd ask you to open your Bible there. And then I'd also encourage you to take your uh, finger or a, a bulletin and, and stick it over in Acts 17 because we're going to go there. Because the church... That to whom Paul was writing, the Thessalonians, the, that church obviously got its start in Acts 17, and we're going to take a look at that. But our, our question for today is, how will God's Spirit and God's Word change you? How has God's Spirit, how has God's Word already changed you? But what else does He have in store for you? Because we cannot believe that God is finished with us. We cannot believe that we have arrived and there is nothing left for us to do. Because God is active. God is present. And God wants to use us. And so what comes to your mind when you think about the changes that the Holy Spirit wants to bring about in your life? What kind of change does the Word of God need to impart upon you and convict you and challenge you, maybe comfort you, maybe encourage you. What does God need to do through his word for you today? 1 Thessalonians was actually Paul's first letter. Some debate whether it was Galatians, but I think Thessalonians was the first letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had established. And that church was established, according to Acts chapter 17, uh, that Paul had been on his had been on a first missionary journey, and this was his second missionary journey. He had been in Philippi, and then had traveled and came to Thessalonica. So, if you have your Bibles open to Acts 17, let's take a look at that passage first. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. Just, just a real quick pause. As was his custom. Here was Paul. 
who always came and sought to find the Jewish community because he wanted his brothers and sisters who were Jews to know about the Messiah. And so it was his custom that he would go into the city that had a synagogue. And we know that, that it required 10 adult Jewish males to form to constitute a synagogue. But the city of Thessalonica was a huge city. It was a coastal city. It was a beautiful city on the, on the Aegean, on the Mediterranean, where Turkey and Greece come together. A beautiful city. And it had a large Jewish population. And if you were to go to Salonika or Saloniki, however you would pronounce that name, today it is the second largest city in Greece. And it has a large Jewish population still. So Paul and his companions came there. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. And these, these were those who had responded to the message that Paul was preaching. Now think about this. Three Sabbath days. How many Sabbath days are there in a week? It's a real trick question, folks. <laughs> One. So if he was there for three Sabbath days, how many weeks were they there teaching? Three weeks. I know from our work in Weatherford, I know from churches that are getting established, to establish a church in three weeks requires God being fully at work in a great way. And that's what we see happening here in Thessalonica. For three weeks. So Paul would go into the synagogue, he would teach, and then he would teach throughout the week. He would work, he would work during day and work at night, but all that, other, all that time he was teaching people about who Jesus was. And so that was the response. And, and I think it's important to notice their response to Paul's message. Luke says that some of the Jews, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women responded positively and accepted Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and that's a great response. But Luke also notes, beginning in verse 5, that there were those who were jealous. Now, folks, have you ever been jealous? I'm not going to ask you to stand and confess why, but there's probably been some times, at least I know in my life, that I have been jealous. And I've been jealous of people for a variety of reasons. I've been jealous of somebody's ability. I've been jealous of somebody's money. I've been jealous of somebody's looks. I've been jealous. I have been jealous. I'm, I got a blue chip from CR to prove it. I, you know, in... That's an inside joke for only people that have ever been in Seattle. But there were people who were jealous. What were they jealous about? Scripture says they were jealous. They were jealous of what? They were jealous of the response of the people who were coming to accept the message of Jesus Christ. They were jealous that some of their friends 
now we're understanding that this Messiah, this Jesus who had been preached to them really was the fulfillment. They no longer had to wait for the Messiah to come. He had already come. And they began to follow, as Paul taught about how you live to follow Christ the Messiah, Jesus. And some of them were jealous. Now, I want you to notice, other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. The Greek word for bad characters, subrostrani, and it literally means those who stayed around the rostrum. They would be in the marketplace, and there were those who kind of hung out where the public forum was, and they were for hire. They would either heckle or they would cheer whomever was speaking, depending on who paid them. And those were the bad characters. These were the guys who were always, always available. They would cheer and clap, or they would jeer and taunt, just depending on who paid them. This is the early years news media that we owe. In verse 6, we read how the mob leaders began shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Now think about that for a moment. How did they know that? Because as the gospel continued to spread, word of the conversions of Jews and Gentiles, and which was unacceptable to much of the Jewish community that, that the Messiah would reach out to the Gentiles. And here were those who were saying, God wants everyone. And the word was spread when these Jews would go back to Jerusalem for the high holy days in Jerusalem. They would hear about this Messiah who had come. They would hear about people who were following Christ. And so now they are saying in the midst of their city, these people who have caused trouble all over the world, they've come here now. A little bit later, if you read in the text, you see that that mob went to the house of a man named Jason. Evidently, Jason had become a leader in that church, probably was known in the community in the Thessalonican community. Probably it was the house where the church was actually meeting. Remember when Paul had been in Philippi? His first convert was Lydia. The first European convert to Christ was this woman who was a businesswoman who was from Thyatira but who was in, in, in the city of Philippi. And she said to Paul, look, if you think that I am, if I'm worthy to hear the gospel and accept Christ, then let me use what God has given me. Meet in my, stay at my house, meet at my house. Evidently, Jason was much the same way. The mob comes to Jason's house. They're looking for Paul and Silas. They come into his house. They can't find Paul and Silas. They take Jason. They drag him out in the street. They take him before the people. He winds up having to post bond and then verse 10 says that later that night, the believers, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Three weeks. And see, that's the background that makes Paul's letter to this group of new believers so wonderful for us to study. 
It is not that, well, back then everything was just easy peasy and everybody was happy. No. The same kind of conflicts that we encounter today, they encountered then. The same kind of difficulties that we encounter now, they encountered then. What, was, what is different? Well, this is where we talk about the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the changes that it makes in our life. So turn over to 1 Thessalonians now, chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 2 and 3. And this is, this is going to be a key passage for us throughout today. Paul, writing back, <clears throat> sent the letter with Timothy. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonia, says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's first letter to a church. This is Paul's first time to use his pen to encourage and to teach. And Paul is writing to these believers there in Thessalonica, these people who were so concerned about him that by night they snuck him out of town. So these are the people who have now received this letter. These are the people who are opening it up and say, we have a letter from Paul. This is what he says. And he begins by talking about them and he remembers how they were. He remembers these things about them. Paul identifies their work as characterized and empowered by their faith. It was a work that could only have been accomplished through faith. And likewise, their labor was motivated by their love. Love for Christ, love for each other, love for people who did not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord. He said that it was a labor that was given in the spirit of love. And then he talked about their endurance their endurance in spite of persecution. Do you think when people got word that, hey, Jason was taken out of the house and he was threatened and he's out on bond, you think there were those who said, wow, this following Jesus thing may be tougher than I thought. And yet they followed anyway. Let's take a closer look at these three characteristics and we'll spend some time here. Your work produced by faith. I like the fact that the Greek word that is used there for work is the word ergon. It's where we get our word ergonomic. What do you think of when you think of something as ergonomic? It is something that is to help you be able to work without pain. It is something that is to enhance your ability to accomplish a task or a responsibility. It is a work produced by faith. It was their faith that caused them to do that kind of work. And their faith was their belief, their trust, their confidence, their faithfulness, their labor prompted by love. That word means to strike or to hit to the point of exhaustion or weariness. That's labor. It's not, well, if I feel like it, well, if it's easy, Oh, that looks too hard. I don't want to be that I don't want to be that committed to church. I don't want to be that committed to Christ. 
No, it was a labor even to the point of exhaustion. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Sometimes we may be tempted to think, God, am I making a difference? Is what I'm doing having any kind of influence for the sake of your kingdom? God, I am so tired. I'm having to repeat myself. I'm having to do this over and over. God, nobody seems to be getting it. Your labor prompted by agape, by your love. And so you keep doing. And then he says, your endurance that is inspired by hope. Endurance is an unswerving from your purpose in times of trial, when under pressure. It is a cheerful endurance. You think back to when Paul and Silas had been in Philippi, and they'd had some success early. They'd met They'd met Lydia, and they'd been able to establish a church in her house, and, and they were teaching, and then things got really bad, right? Remember that Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into jail. And what did they do that night when they were there in jail? Silas turned to Paul and said, what have you gotten me into? No, that's not what he said. What did they do? They were singing and praising God. And they sounded so bad that the chains broke. That's how. That's not what happened either. Just checking. You see, this endurance inspired by our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't hope in that it's going to get better. It's not a hope that says, oh, well, maybe tomorrow will be better. It wasn't that kind of a hope. It wasn't, I've got this figured out kind of hope. It was a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, you've got us into this. I'm trusting you in this. Whatever comes is your will, and I trust that. My hope, and I can endure. Are you hearing the theme, and you noticed on the logo, faith, hope, and love? Paul's first letter and he's writing about these three great characteristics. He will write them, and you'll hear, them, hear of them again in his letter to the Corinthians. You may not have studied the Bible, but if you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard, now faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And oftentimes, I read that in a, in a wedding, and I have to confess, and if I read this at your wedding, don't think I was being judgmental, but a lot of times when I've read that, I've thought, you guys don't have a clue what love is all about. Paul is saying faith and hope and love. Paul had already established these as foundational principles. The Thessalonians was a work characterized by faith, and only through faith could it have been accomplished. Their labor was a labor prompted by love, and their endurance and patience in the service they gave was inspired and cheered on by their hope in Christ. I want to tell you a story about a church. It's called the Northview Church. It's in the Indianapolis area. It is a multi-site church. They run around 10,000 people on a Sunday in their seven sites. 
and they have a ministry that they call Dollar Club. Sound familiar? Brian just talked about our ministry of Dollar Difference. They call it Dollar Club, and they too, they ask people on Dollar Club Sunday to give an extra dollar. Normally, they will raise between six dollars and $10,000. Normally, they will focus giving their money to foster families or to help with medical bills and so on. Last May, Northview Church told their membership that they had a special opportunity and they're going to ask people to give three or four bucks extra. And that Sunday, they raised about $30,000 extra. And a few weeks later, the church partnered with a nonprofit ministry called RIP Medical Debt, Rest in Peace Medical Debt. And that charity, that organization, would buy debt, medical debt, from hospitals, from doctors, from collection agencies. Usually they would pay pennies on the dollar for it. But they were able to take the 30000 gift from the Northview Church and leverage that, and they wiped out $4 million of medical debt throughout the state of Indiana. Now, folks, we don't have 10,000 people, but we do dollar difference. And let me tell you, you can ask any of our recipients that they have been blessed because of work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. That's what was going on. And I think that's important for us to understand. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Through him, through Jesus, through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. But it's critically important to understand where their faith and their hope and their love came from. In verse 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Just, just think about that. Focus on that for just a moment. You know how we lived among you, and we lived that way for your sake. Paul said, as an apostle, I, I, I could have said, you guys need to help support me, but we worked night and day so that we would not be a burden on anyone. We, we gave of ourselves to you for your sake, we wanted you to know Jesus the same way we know Jesus. Paul obviously spoke with understandable words, but he said, we didn't just give you words. We spoke with power. God's power. God's power was what was at work. And we spoke with the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, it is better for me to go away. Because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will come to you. And he will direct you in all truths. Folks, 
63 years ago, the desire of Highland Park Christian Church was for the power of the gospel to be proclaimed in this place and for the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts and the minds of the people who heard the gospel. And that's what took place. And then he said it was with full conviction, deep conviction. Whose conviction? Paul and Silas's conviction. I am convinced that what I am telling you is true. And then it became the conviction of the Thessalonians that this is true and this is how I need to live. Paul reflected the influence that the Thessalonians experienced from observing how they lived. It was a testimony of presence. And folks, we can still have, we should still have a testimony of presence that by your presence in the lives of the people you encounter, there should be something about your presence that is a reflection of Jesus and that people see that. There should be something about your presence that says, I don't know what it is exactly, but there is some kind of power, there is some kind of strength that's in their life that I want to have in my life. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, writes, Spiritual transformation cannot be orchestrated or controlled, but neither is it a random venture. We need some kind of support or structure, much as a young vine needs a trellis. And then I love this line. We need sails to help us catch the winds of the Spirit. We'll talk about that. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he reminded them about the power of the message about Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Now Paul will flesh out to the Thessalonians how the Thessalonians' work produced by faith and their labor prompted by love and their endurance inspired by hope was evidence not only to Paul but to all who believed. If you continue to read in the text, Paul says, we don't even have to talk to people about you anymore. They tell us about you. They tell us how you left the worship of idols and have turned to Christ. Other people who have heard about the Thessalonians now are saying, yeah, you heard about when they came to Christ. The change that came over them went from worshiping idols to following Christ. That was, that was their evidence. Paul also pointed out how that, that their witness, the Thessalonian witness, was a continuation of his witness to them. And his witness to them was a continuation of the witness of those who had led Paul to Christ. And those who had led Paul to Christ were those who had been followers of Jesus Christ. And it was his witness to them, to Paul, to the Thessalonians, to us. That is what Paul is talking about here, and it's important for us. So let me ask you, in what ways is your faith in Christ evident? for the people that you encounter? Can others see the reality of your hope by the way in which you live? Can people in the midst of their personal struggles look at your life 
and then begin to develop their own faith, their own love, their own hope. That's what Paul said that happened with the Thessalonians. That is what God intends for his church to be. Somebody looks and says, I don't understand exactly, but I know that they always say that they trust in Christ. Maybe I need to also. The problem that's becoming increasingly apparent today is that, that many people confuse a cultural faith with con- what I call convictional faith. Cultural faith is a belief that, oh, hey, I'm just as good as anybody else. It's, it is claiming to be a Christian, but not living a life directed by biblical, Christ-honoring principles. A cultural Christian is like a person who signs up for a marathon. They get a race number. They buy the expensive gear. But they've never trained to run the marathon. They show up at the race and they look like everybody else. But as soon as the race begins, they soon begin to fall out because they have not endured, because they have not trained. And the sad thing is that there are a lot of people who are angry at the church. They're angry at Christians because they equate all Christians with the cultural Christians. And they don't recognize the difference between there is a cultural Christian and a convictional Christian. There is someone who is convicted by the Holy Spirit in their life. Convictional Christians continually train themselves through the study of God's word, through prayer, through service, through loving and caring. And then skip down to the second chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul makes this significant observation about their reception of the message. And he says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. You see, when the Thessalonians heard the message of Paul's preaching, they received it. And they didn't say, that's an interesting theory. The Greeks were famous for doing that. Paul would encounter that mindset in Athens next stop on his journey after Berea. They received it. They said, there's something about this. It came to them with power. It came to them through the Holy Spirit. It came to them with a full conviction. I have committed my life to this. And they saw that and they responded to that. Their response is not what is often heard today. The Bible is increasingly seen as a man-made document, a document full of errors and myths. There are a variety of attacks on its authenticity, on its accuracy, on the importance even as a historical document. Yet Paul praised the Thessalonians because they recognized that the message that Paul had preached was not just another philosophy, not just another ideology. It was a message sent from God through the preaching of Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Our society is increasingly hostile to the word of God. Some are hostile towards God's word because, one, it proclaims that there is a moral standard. 
Some are offended by the Bible's claim to divine inspiration when the world says it's just man's thoughts. Some are hostile towards God's word because it identifies some of our societal norms as sins. And others are offended because it speaks of a judgment to come and a reward for those who have obeyed and a punishment for those who reject. And people struggle with that. At the end of his ministry, Paul would write to young Timothy, and he would say, Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Work produced by faith. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I don't know how God's word works, but I do know it does. Because I am sure for as many of you you have had that same experience as you begin to read God's word and this conviction begins to take place and it begins to help you sort out the attitudes that are wrong and the attitudes that are right. It, it begins to help you evaluate your motives. It begins to give you direction and encouragement. The, importance for, the important thing for us, I believe, is to understand this, that the word of God reveals the character of God. When I read the word of God, I experience the character of God. I see God's presence through his word. And that affects how I live my life. Right? I'm going to invite you, and you'll see on your sermon page notes, spend some time in reflection and we're going to ask you to ask yourself these questions. Can people see that your faith produces God-honoring work? Can people see that your love prompts your willing labor, your willingness to serve? Can people see that your hope inspires endurance. And here's the one that, that I've thought about a lot. What are the sails that can help you catch the wind of the Spirit? What do you need to do? Picture yourself on a sailboat and you begin to run up the sail. The wind picks up. The sail billows it is filled with the wind, and the, then you use that to set course. What are some sails in your life that will help you collect the wind of the Spirit, to help the Holy Spirit, to allow the Holy Spirit to direct you? How does what you believe about the Bible affect how you respond to the Bible. 
How can Highland Park, 63-year-old church, how can Highland Park help you today to grow in your expression of faith and hope and love? What can we do? What can you do to help Highland Park do that for other people? That's how I want us to close today. I'm going to pray and then we will be dismissed. But what is it that God is prompting you today? Can people see your faith and your hope and your love? Are there some things that you need to access? Sales, if you will. That will help you harness, be moved by the wind of the Holy Spirit. How do you view God's word? Is it shaping your life? Is it directing your life? God, I thank you for the 63 years that you have been at work in this place. God, I thank you for the love you have demonstrated. I thank you for the faith that was expressed in our beginning and the faith that has directed and guided us through these years. Father, may we be like the Thessalonians. that people will be able to see that our faith is, is what produces the things that we do, that we live by faith. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will help us to, to love in such a way that we're willing to extend ourselves in labor for you, even to the point of exhaustion. And I pray, Father, that, that our endurance, that we will not grow weary in doing good because our hope is firmly committed to you and in you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you uh, want to talk to someone about Highland Park as a church home. Maybe you need to talk to someone about what it means to follow Christ, be obedient to him. Maybe you want a specific prayer about something. As we're dismissed, these front rows are a place where people will come and be able to pray with you. Thank you for being here today. You're dismissed.